Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. As always, I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a good week this week. Today's a, a little bit of a struggle for me. There is someone like working on something in the house and not to bore you with the details, but because of that, I'm holed up in my room because I just don't like people and I just haven't, you know, I just don't want to be around. My dad's taking care of it. So, you know, whatever. But because of that, I haven't really eaten since breakfast and it's been, I don't know, it feels like it's been like four hours this dude has been here so far. But regardless, aside from that, the power went out in my room for a minute, I think because of whatever this guy has to do and that is fixing or whatever. And I think that that turning on and off of the power fried my Xbox. Yeah, there was like there wasn't any noise or anything like that, but I, I, everything else came back on when the power turned right back on except my xbox and i've been trying to turn it on i've checked everything and like everything's plugged in correctly and whatnot and it just won't turn on so i think it's dead i mean i did wait like about an hour or so in between when i've checked it but of course you know it had to happen right when i was rewatching the episode of Death in the Dorms, uh, the episode that we're going to cover today just a little bit. But yeah, so that was not great, but it's the weekend. We made it. So hopefully, you know, I mean, it's not the worst thing. I mean, I do have access or a way to get another one and can afford to get another one if I need to. But, you know, just was not on the schedule for today or you know really anytime soon so <laughs> you know but I mean I guess it's on the older side so I guess I shouldn't be too surprised I mean I'm sure it would have happened if the like we had a storm and the power went out that way but I don't know we'll see maybe it'll come back to life I don't know but I I don't have too high hopes for that so <laughs> Anyway, without any further ado, let's get into episode three of Death in the Dorms, The Murder of Yardley Love. Real quick before we get into the episode, I just want to apologize if you hear any of the noise from the said work on the house that is being done. It's also extremely like windy and rainy over here. So if you hear any of that in the audio during this episode, I apologize but, you know, I can't really do too much <laughs> to fix it. So I'm sorry. On May 2nd, 2010, the women's lacrosse team at the University of Virginia, or UVA, had their last game. The following night, the team went out to celebrate at a local bar called Boylan Heights. Yardley Love, one of the team's star players, decided to go home early on her own. When Yardley's roommate, who was out with Yardley at Boyland Heights that night, came home around 2 a.m. She went to Yardley's room because, you know, she wanted to talk to her. She became worried when she found a hole in Yardley's bedroom door. When she moved closer to the bed, she realized that there was blood. She tried to wake Yardley by calling her name and shaking her. And at one point, she takes her hand to move Yardley's light brown hair from her face and noticed that 
Yardley's face is completely covered with blood. Her roommate immediately dials 911 and EMS start CPR upon arrival, but it was no use. The 22-year-old Yardley Love was dead. In 1987, Yardley Love was born the youngest daughter to Sharon and John Love on July 17, 1987 in Cockeysville, Maryland. I'm sorry, but that's just a horrible name for a town or a city. I can't help it. I'm a child. Anyway, she had an older sister named Lexi, who she totally just looked up to. Yardley was described as being very determined, but easygoing and funny. Unlike her tennis player sister, Lexi, Yardley enjoyed team sports, specifically lacrosse, and she was really, really good at it. She was described as being tiny compared to her teammates, but when she had the ball, like, she would run. She was a really good runner. In seventh grade, Yardley's father is diagnosed with terminal cancer, and even during his sickness, he still attended Yardley's games. Sadly, he died Yardley's freshman year of high school. After his death, Yardley and Lexi vowed to make their father proud. The three of them, Sharon, Lexi, and Yardley, became super, super close. Now, because of Yardley's father's affection for UVA, Yardley vowed that she was not only going to get into that school, but that she was going to play lacrosse there, which is a D1 school, which is like top of the top. So she was extremely ambitious, and she did. Not only did she get in the school, but she was recruited for lacrosse and played all four years, which is kind of unheard of because most people usually quit at some point during college because it's like having a full-time job on top of college. Yardley majored in political science in the hopes of becoming a lawyer, and she was actually able to get into a law school in New York before her graduation. She had also joined a sorority called Theta. Now, by all accounts, she was thriving at University of Virginia. And in her sophomore year, she actually started dating a UVA men's lacrosse player named George Hughley. The two, though, would wind up breaking up towards the end of their senior year, which was in 2010. Now, when police arrive at Yardley's apartment shortly after the EMS, They see obvious signs of trauma to Yardley's body and face, particularly on the right side. Officers immediately rule her bedroom a crime scene and investigate her case as a homicide. Now, at first glance at the apartment, there's really no evidence of assault. The only signs of a struggle were in Yardley's bedroom. Aside from the hole in her door, There was blood at the floor at the end of her bed, and her room was disheveled and, like I said, just showed signs of a struggle. They also noticed that her laptop and cell phone were missing, which I know for some of you maybe youngins that listen, um, in 2010, which was, I don't even want to talk about it. Anyway, we had cell phones back then. And, you know, so we were texting and stuff like that. And we were sort of attached to our phones just like people are. Like, it was still weird to go anywhere without your cell phone. Now, at first, investigators believed that it just could have been a robbery gone wrong. 
there was no sign of a murder weapon and there really wasn't an obvious motive. Police immediately interview her friends and her roommate to learn more about Yardley and her whereabouts before her murder. Police learn that Yardley was at a bar the previous night, like we had mentioned, the Boylan Heights, and then again walked home by herself. Now, while canvassing the area of uh, the apartment, they also talk to her neighbor that lives below her. And this neighbor said that they had been home at night and they recalled hearing someone walking up the steps towards Yardley's apartment. Now, after some time, this same person says that they hear a crashing noise, which police deduce to be, you know, when the hole in the door was made. This person then states that they heard someone leave the apartment and go back down the stairs. They then go to look at the window and see a man leaving the building, but they can't see his face, but they can tell that this person is tall and that he is a he and wearing blue shorts and a white t-shirt. Yardley's mother, Sharon, receives a knock on the door at 6 a.m. that morning, May 3rd. When she opens it, there are police officers asking if she is Yardley's mother and In this episode, she states that after she hears this, everything is just a blur after that, which I can't even imagine how insanely excruciating that must have been for Sharon and Lexi and for all parents and family members of, you know, the other cases that I've covered and beyond. I mean, it's just so sad for a parent to have to lose their child for one, but then also to find out that they've been murdered. So eventually, Sharon and Lexi head for Charlottesville. At around 7.15 a.m., police are still talking with Yardley's roommate, and they learn about her ex-boyfriend, George, Yardley's ex-boyfriend. Police are able to get surveillance footage from the bar, and they can see that George and Yardley are spotted together. What happens is Yardley kind of walks over to where George is and he puts his arm around her for a few seconds before she walks off. Now, I just want to state that this bar is crowded. It is clearly in a college town, so it's probably one of the popular hangouts amongst the UVA students. And, you know, them being on the same, or like not the same, but them both being on the lacrosse teams, you know, they ran in the same circles. So, I mean, this interaction isn't exactly weird, but also I don't want you to think that like, oh, she went over to him to like talk to him. It seemed like she was walking over because she was talking to someone in the vicinity of where he was, like across from him or something. Of course, police realize that they need to talk to George. Now, George Hughley is from Chevy Chase, Maryland. He's actually the fifth in his family, so he comes from a long line of George Hughley's. His parents divorced when he was young, and his father was actually a really successful businessman, but that's really thanks to generational wealth that had been passed down to him. George attended an elite all-boys school called the Landon School, which was known for churning out professional athletes. So by all accounts, George, despite the divorce of his parents, you know, has a pretty normal life. George and Yardley met their freshman year in a Spanish class. Yardley would describe George to her friends and family as just being absolutely hilarious. And Yardley's family also found him to be funny, but also happy-go-lucky and just overall fun to be around. 
And Yardley seemed happy with him, so there really wasn't cause for concern. George really kind of seemed, though, to have it all. The wealthy upbringing, the private schools, playing Division I lacrosse at a really good school. You know, great fun personality, gorgeous girlfriend. But as we all know, people, people tend to have skeletons in their closet, and George was no exception. Friends of Yardley's told police that there was a huge difference between sober George and drunk George. Drunk George was obnoxious and cocky, and despite the University of Virginia being a quote-unquote drinking school or party school, which I feel like that's kind of ridiculous to single it out to only certain colleges because I feel like every college or university is like a drinking school because it's college, but... Despite that, his friends also stated that George took drinking to, like, another level. That he would wake up the next day most times not remembering anything he did and would do some pretty regrettable shit. George was also very jealous and seemed to have trust issues. He would call and text Yardley repeatedly when she would be out with her friends. But she would just laugh it off and say, well, that's just George being George. Now, there was a particular incident, and this wasn't reported, so this is why police weren't aware of it. George had heard a rumor that Yardley had walked home one night by one of George's teammates. Again, there wasn't an exact timeline for this as to when this happened, but it seemed to be maybe towards the end of their relationship. But regardless, they were still together. So he hears about this teammate walking her home one night and he just assumes that something happened between them and obviously it infuriated him. So this prompted George to break into his teammate's apartment and beat the crap out of him while he was in bed sleeping. The teammate that he hit and beat up was significantly injured, but this incident was never reported to police. In the interviews with her friends and roommates, George's name obviously keeps coming up, and it seems to police that his and Yardley's relationship was more tumultuous, tumultuous, I think I said that right, than they seemed. I don't know why. When I said it, it just sounded wrong. But anyway, things are not what they seem with George and Yardley's relationship. So police search Yardley's room, and they find a handwritten apology from George. In this letter, he obviously apologizes, but admits to being scared of the fact that he used, quote, physical force to keep you in my room, end quote. The end of the letter, George states, quote, I am so sorry again, and I hope to talk with you when you feel you can. I can assure you, though, I will never act as I did that Saturday night. I'm sorry again, exclamation point, exclamation point. Love, George, end quote. With all of this information, investigators now have enough of a reason to go to George's apartment and tell him that they need to speak with him to discuss an assault that they're investigating. And George agrees, but he does this without asking any questions. Like, you would suspect that, you know, if the police come up to your door and knock on it and are like, hey, we need you to come down to the station, we need to talk to you about an assault that happened that we're investigating, you would think that the first response from that person would be, what happened? Who was assaulted? Like, what's going on? And he doesn't do any of that. He just agrees and he goes to the police station. 
Now, in the interview with police, he describes his day and he admits to seeing Yardley. But again, he hasn't asked at all why he's being questioned or who was assaulted. At one point, he refers to Yardley actually in the past tense, saying she was, but quickly changes to is my former girlfriend when asked, like, who is Yardley? But when asked why they broke up, he states that Yardley found a text from another girl in his phone and that caused the breakup. That would be a lie. Three months prior at a party at George's apartment slash apartment building, George got really drunk and was being an asshole. He actually physically restrained Yardley in his bedroom by having his arm around her neck. She shouted for help and luckily someone in the house or the apartment heard. This person went right to George's bedroom and opened the door to find him pinning Yardley to the bed with his hands around her neck, choking her. Other people in the building had to get involved and they had to actually physically pull him off of her. Yardley told her family and friends and assured them that she never wanted to speak to him again. Sharon drives down or up. I can't. Yeah, down. And Sorry, guys. We all know I suck at geography. So she drives down to Charlottesville to pick up Yardley and bring her home because, you know, understandably, she does not want to be in school. She doesn't want to be near him. Makes sense. Yardley, while she's at home, writes George a letter, basically just saying, like, look, dude, it's over. She discusses with her mom whether or not she would need a restraining order or if they needed to call the police to report the assault. Now, get this. At the time of the incident, which is 2010, you could not get a restraining order unless you were married or lived with the person you were asking for a restraining order against. What the actual fuck, Virginia? The actual, like, stupidity of those restrictions is just maddening. But regardless, after a few days at home, Yardley had to return to school for lacrosse practice. And when Yardley's mother drove her down, she asked if she should tell the coaches what happened. And Yardley told her not to and that it would be fine. So clearly, Yardley is not wanting to press the issue further. I think she's hoping at this point that she can handle it on her own which I'm not saying is right or wrong given the circumstances because I'm not blaming her at all for what happened to her. It's just, I can see why she just wanted to let it go and move on. When police find out about this incident, they put that and the note together. And George actually tells them that despite this incident, because he does eventually tell them about this and he talks Way more than he should, which we'll get into in a second. But he says that even after this had happened, they still hung out probably a dozen times after that. Which, again, it's college. Like, you're in your own little bubble. And everyone pretty much hangs out with everyone else. So it's hard to literally avoid people in college. And I don't think they actually hung out alone. I'm guessing it was at, you know, various parties or bars, you know, where their groups of friends are hanging out. Again, they're both playing lacrosse and ran in the same circles. So it would have probably been really hard for them to avoid each other. But I just hate how he, in the interview, says that, like, them hanging out was 
because like she wanted to and not like they just so happened to be at the same place hanging out with the same people. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order... Just slide into her DMs, and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Police also learn of another incident. On April 27, 2010, George was home in his apartment and Yardley had actually found out that George had hooked up with one of her sorority sisters. So she decided to go over there and confront him. According to friends of Yardley and the people that she had interacted with, she was definitely drunk and upset and... When she got there to his apartment, she actually hit him several times with her purse. Now, while I do understand her situation, yes, but do I condone what she did? Absolutely not. But at the same time, I also kind of feel like she's justified, which is so hypocritical and I know. But I mean, like, he attempted to murder her versus her hitting him with her purse are just on two completely different ballparks or are in two completely different ballparks as far as violence is concerned so i'm kind of happy for her that she got to get like got to hit him after what he did but like i still technically don't condone it regardless you know after george tells police about this incident he explains to the detectives that that's why he wanted to talk to Yardley and why he saw her the early morning slash late night of May 2nd slash May 3rd. One of the detectives, a female detective, asks him, you know, like, how much did you have to drink that night? And he drank quite a lot. He said he had four to five beers on the golf course where he played golf with his parents. Then he said he had two glasses of wine at dinner and then five more beers after that. 
he admits that he should not have gone over to Yardley's apartment, but that, you know, he was emotional. Now, honestly, the entire time during this interview, he sounds like still drunk from the night before. Not that like he's slurring or anything, but like, I don't know. Like, I f- feel like he's supposed to be like this super intelligent, funny kind of guy. And he just sounds like a dumb jock in this interview. A drunk, dumb jock. Anyway, he continues to say that when he got to Yardley's apartment, her front door was open, but that, you know, she wasn't in the living room, so he went and knocked on her bedroom door. Now, he claims that Yardley heard him knock and open the door, and then he went in. Now, the detectives, they are not buying this, obviously, because they've seen the damage to her door. And when they questioned him about how he got to Yardley's room... (laughs) George starts to change his story and actually says that he thinks the bedroom door was locked. And of course, the detectives agree that the door was locked because, again, they know this based off of their initial search of her bedroom and the damage that was done to the door. The detective says something to the effect, the female detective, basically like, so you put your fist through the door and immediately, without hesitation, he says, no, actually, it's my leg, I think. I think that's why my leg isn't the best. And the detective is able to check out his leg. He just offers it up. And there's this long cut that is bloodied over. She then draws attention to the bruising on his hand. And George is adamant and states that it's from the lacrosse game. And this detective, I love her because she just totally does not buy his bullshit. But he insists that it was from his lacrosse game that he had on Saturday. George also claims that when he was in the room, he and Yardley wrestled. But when asked if he tried to call or text her beforehand on the way to her apartment, he said, no, and uses her attacking him as the reason because during that incident, she lost her phone in his room. So from then on, Yardley had been using her computer to communicate with everyone, like I feel most normal people would do if they lost their cell phone, even today. So the whole her phone is missing is quote-unquote like accounted for, I guess. So the detective then asks about the laptop. And if he took it when he left Yardley's apartment after they quote unquote wrestled. Again, he admits that he did it. Now, I'm not on his side, obviously. Spoilers. George did it. In case any of you weren't sure if he was the killer or not, he is. But I mean, I just don't. I mean, I kind of come to a different conclusion when I watched it the second time, but Even still, it's just, like, so stupid. I've said it before on this show. Innocent or guilty, you never talk to police without a lawyer. Their job is to know the law and to keep you from getting screwed over by law enforcement. Because, guess what? Not all law enforcement officers know the laws. So, yeah. I mean, this (laughs) idiot just keeps going on. And we'll talk about it a little later. But I really do think he is offering up so much information on purpose, but, you know, it totally backfires on him. And it's just so arrogant and stupid. It just, he fucking annoys me. 
George admits that, yes, he took her computer because he was pissed that she wouldn't talk to him, and he took it as, like, collateral. But when they asked him where they could find Yardley's laptop, he said he threw it in a dumpster on his way home. Which, if you're taking the laptop as collateral, why the fuck would you dispose of it? What, like, what would you expect to happen from that? Like, you think that she's going to talk to you to get her laptop? Like, okay, of course she's going to talk to you to get her laptop back. But then she's also not going to talk to you because you threw her laptop in a fucking dumpster. I mean, the logic that he puts forward with this is just so idiotic. But, you know, at least George is being consistent here, I guess. He also admits that during their wrestling that occurred, Yardley had a bloody nose as the result and that he even pushed her onto the bed and told her to go to bed before he left. At this point, still, George has not asked what has happened to Yardley, which is interesting given all that he's offered up to police. Because it's kind of like, okay, Maybe it's not so weird now that you didn't ask about, like, the assault that they were investigating. Clearly, you knew this was the situation and what you were being, you know, asked questions for. But then to still not ask what happened to her is just interesting. And eventually, the detective does tell George that Yardley is dead. And, I mean, he does seem to be shocked and insists that he did not know that before coming to the police station. George does appear to become more and more distressed as, like, you know, the detectives are speaking to him and insists that he didn't do anything that could have killed her. As he's being handcuffed, he asks the detectives to just tell him that she's not dead. And, of course, the detectives say to him, no, we wish we could. He does, though, genuinely seem to be shocked at times. And it could, like I said, it could be from the fact that he's shocked that he's getting caught. But the only small reason that I think he could be telling the truth is if he really was blackout drunk and truly didn't remember, which obviously I'm not saying that that's the case here, nor is it a valid excuse, but could be a reason for why he couldn't remember what had happened. Now, I think it's more shocked, like I said, that he's just being arrested and that he was caught. Like I said, when I watched this the second time, And got this impression that he was just offering up the information intentionally. Because I think that he hoped that police would buy his story that she was alive when he left and move on. Possibly to see if someone else broke in and killed her. But they don't. And they place the blame solely where it belongs. By the time that Sharon and Lexi get to Charlottesville, George has already been arrested. Because it's around 1 o'clock in the afternoon when they get there. They meet with a man named David Chapman, who is the prosecutor for Yardley's case. And essentially, he explained to them the entire process and the charges that were filed against George. Yardley's autopsy revealed a completely different story than the one that George had told police, which is no surprise to anyone. The autopsy concluded that injuries started at Yardley's head and went down to both of her legs. She suffered brain hemorrhaging, severe bruising to the side of her neck and face, bruising under her chin, a black eye, bruising to her lip, bruising on her arms, her torso, 
and her legs. I mean, if you think it's fucking gruesome now, just wait, it gets worse. The primary cause of death was from internal brain injuries that she had sustained. And the autopsy also detected that there were cardiovascular and respiratory events occurring for at least two hours after she was assaulted. Meaning that she was alive, most likely not conscious, but alive for two hours after she was attacked. Which, again, is just so fucking brutal. And sadly, it also means that she had died shortly before her roommate had found her. After George's arrest, investigators worked to find out if Yardley's death was premeditated or just a result of him being blackout drunk and angry. Police searched the dumpster near George's apartment and are able to find Yardley's laptop inside. What police found odd about the dumpster that George used was that it wasn't on the way home like he had suggested. In fact, he had to go a block in the complete opposite direction of his apartment to get to this dumpster. So that was a huge red flag and obviously a huge discrepancy in George's story. So, of course, police are suspecting that there is some sort of evidence on Yardley's computer that George doesn't want found. And, of course, they were right, because the laptop consisted of a series of emails and some that corroborated, you know, her attacking George with her purse and that that's how she lost her phone. But a back and forth continued between them. And Yardley actually offered up an apology for attacking him. But instead of accepting her apology... George responds in a way that's quite telling. He basically tells her that he doesn't accept her apology and that what she did was fucked up and that he, quote, should have killed her, end quote. This, of course, started an argument between them where Yardley says to him that, you know, she and her friends got a good laugh out of her attacking him the next day, which many people, including investigators, feel that this was what triggered George. And I mean, it's in black and white, though, you know. So police use this email as proof that George premeditated her murder. It took two years before George Hughley's trial started. George was charged with first and second degree murder, voluntary and involuntary manslaughter, burglary with the intent to commit assault, and battery. George, of course, pleaded not guilty. The f- defense team did not dispute the fact that George was responsible for Yardley's murder, but they tried to prove that he did not plan or intend to kill her and, you know, that her death was an unfortunate accident. One of the last witnesses called by the prosecution was actually a friend of George's named Ken Clawson. He stated that when George got back to his apartment after midnight, He was just completely unresponsive, despite the fact that Ken had asked George over and over again, what's wrong with you? George was found guilty on second-degree murder and grand larceny. It was stated that the jury felt that there was no premeditation. George Hughley V was sentenced to 23 years in prison. Since her death, the University of Virginia prompted students to speak up if they saw something, you know, to say something, in hopes that this could prevent what happened to Yardley to anyone else. Sharon started a nonprofit organization called One Love, and its goal is to help women and children ages 16 to 24 
which is sadly a group at most risk for domestic violence, and came up with an education program to try and help stop domestic violence before it starts. There's a bridge in Charlottesville called the Beta Bridge, and every year the University of Virginia's women's lacrosse team paint that bridge in Yardley's memory. So, my friends, that is all I have for you today. I know that's such a sad story. I mean, they all are. I hope you all have a great weekend. Please don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC in Academia. Also, if you want access to bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber. And until next week, my loves, I will see you later. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the Pink Triangle. Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopia novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes, great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. 
And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>